Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we're bringing you part two of our two-part series on French serial killer Dr. Marcel Patiot. It's a ratatouille of evil. We finally find Dr. Patiot, who in a few brief months had joined the French army, risen to the rank of captain under a fake name, and then joined the task force searching for him. We hear Dr. Patiot's version of events, which involve a top-secret murder squad called Fly Talks, and we learn about Dr. Patiot's time as a small-town mayor and his reverse enema constipation machine and the most <laughs> absurd trial I have ever encountered in my life. For this series, I read the book the Unspeakable Crimes of Dr. Patu by Thomas Mater. I literally couldn't recommend this book enough. It is so, so good. Uh, like I said last week, I'm doing a fun, quickie version of this story. If it interests you, he does an in-depth, beautiful, brilliant job. Read it. And remember, everyone, I really can't speak French. And when I try... <laughs> I, all the words around the word get messed uh -huh. up. So I really am. I, this is a really hard thing for me to do in two parts. Stupid, uh -huh. you might say. <laughs> Stupid, you might say. I love how the title of the book is The Unspeakable Crimes. And you're just like, sorry, is that a dare? Oh, I will speak about this. The whole I time I thought it was Patois. <laughs> and it's Patois. Uh, we think. Okay. We want to welcome Kate A. back to the Patreon. It's a brutal world out there. And every time one of you pulls out your credit or debit card and punches in those digits to support our self-produced podcast, it brightens our hearts. We've got an onslaught of exclusive episodes coming your way. We're available. doing them all the last week of the month, baby. Yeah, they're going to be coming fast <laughs> and furious. Plus, we had to make one up from last month. So Yeah, we're doing them every day this week. Yes, and we're recording this after a long day of uh, of work for me. So we might have to stop and take a shot. Remember, I bought those weird little like... I'm sure they're really gross. They're like strawberry cream moonshine shots. They're I in the tiny little you mason did jars. That, you I did. Monster. But they're there. We might have to break them out to get through this episode. We're going to see how it goes. Anyways, we love you guys. Thanks for signing <laughs> up for our Patreon and Spotify. Uh, and we're glad you're joining us, um, regardless of everything else that you've got going on in your life. It's All amazing right. to have you. This one's for Kate A, baby. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick, and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. We're going to joke. We're going to curse. Two more reasons you might not like us. Go ahead and just turn us off. Okay. Uh, Nikki, yes. are you ready to hear the rest of this story? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Let's get started. We left off last episode in the late spring of 1944 with a house of horrors in the posh 16th arrondissement. A missing mad doctor and 
A lot of questions, yeah. right? And a bunch of people that are clearly in on it, if not outright, just helping him do all the murders and then just wearing the clothes and stealing all these incredibly poor people's riches. I know. Uh, French police had a handful of people connected to the case in custody, including Dr. Petus, wife Georgette, and brother Maurice, along with three of his co-conspirators in what the Germans were calling an escape operation. And that would be Rene Nezendet. Remember, that was yes. that guy with the theater tickets who everybody think is a wackadoo, right? Uh-huh. Well, they think he's dumb, right? Yeah, they think he's <laughs> dumb, and he bought that field to try to find the treasure. <laughs> yeah, Bummer uh-huh. for him. Good. Uh, Edmund Pintard, and that's the guy who was the old vaudeville guy who does makeup for uh, Paramount Pictures. Right, so he's like an actor with a side hustle, a.k.a. most of our friends. Mm -hmm. And then Raul Foyer, who owned the barbershop where a lot of this stuff went down. Mm -hmm. Short squat, loves a beret. Okay. All right, so through the course of the investigation, (laughs) it was just really hard to pin down exactly who knew what at what time. They were just slippery. Stories kept changing. People threw each other under the bus. And miraculously, everyone was totally shocked and blindsided that through all the quicklime deliveries and piles of suitcases and jewels and furs and people never to be seen or heard from again, that there was something amiss going on, right? Investigators were pretty positive. This brother, Maurice, in particular, really probably knew a lot more than he let on. But by this point... He was dying of throat cancer, and they just decided to call it a wash. Okay. <laughs> Ultimately, the case was so complicated that authorities just decided they just wanted a strong case against a central figure and ended up dropping all the charges against any potential co-conspirators who all seemed like dumbasses at this point. They were like, whatever, right? We're just letting that <laughs> go, and we're just going to focus on this one guy. Well, wouldn't that be a great thing if in life... You know, you could just be like, what? I'm dumb. And they're like, you're right. Never mind. They're just like, well, you know, they can't. They don't have a lot. They have a lot, Uh but they don't have a lot. Right. (sighs) But the real problem is they didn't have a central figure. Right. Because they still hadn't found Dr. Petou. What the hell? (laughs) But Dr. Petou, his ass was still on the run somewhere. And Paris and the world was in chaos. It was very hard to track down a serial killing doctor in the final throes of World War II. Mm-hmm. In fact, just a few months after the bodies were discovered at 21 Rue Le Sur, the princess house, and Dr. Petou disappeared, the French resistance rose up and triggered the end of the German occupation of Paris. In August 1944, so just in March 1944, you know, the bodies were discovered. In August 1944, the French army took back Paris and the Germans were purged from the city. Mm-hmm. But in all this madness, our top investigator, Commissaire Massou, was sure Dr. Petou was still somewhere in Paris. To try and flush him out, Massou decided to play on our stupid doctor's vanity. Okay. So he published this super outrageous and a lot of people think completely fabricated letter in a Parisian newspaper. So this is this letter that was from a man claiming to be a longtime associate of Dr. Petou, all about how he 
um, first met the doctor when Patu paid him to have sex with a hooker so the doctor could watch. And then he's like, oh, after that, we started up a small time gig selling Coke and bathroom stalls and bars. And we did that for like years. We were Coke buddies. And then, you know, he's like, you know, the last time I heard, you know, Patu was working for the Germans against the resistance betraying his fellow countrymen. And at this time, of mm-hmm, course, mm-hmm. in Paris, saying something like that about someone is like double slap to the face. Okay, you know? so they're trying to insult him. Yeah, it's huge basically. insult. Coke in the bathroom. <laughs> and you watch the, them have the sex and, you know, whatever. <laughs> this is such a, that's really offensive. And not an accent. Oh, God. So October 18th, yeah. 1944, Dr. Petiu responds to the letter through his lawyer, all but confirming he was somewhere in Paris. He wrote an indignant third person. Refu- I'm telling you this because it's kind of confusing. Right uh-huh. He's writing in third person. Okay. Refuting everything in the letter and painting himself as a long suffering hero of the resistance. Mm-hmm. So like, remember, we talked about this last episode. For months, he's been in all the French newspapers being painted as this insane monster who's killed all these people. And so now he's finally writing a letter to be published in the paper. And he's like, actually, I'm a resistance hero. Right. So he writes this long letter and then he ends the letter. I'm just going to read you the ending. Okay. Okay. Quote, again, third person. He is still doing all he can for the cause And begs your pardon if he cannot take the time to get involved in polemics on this matter. Having lost everything but his life, he is selflessly risking even that under an assumed name, scarcely hoping that pens and tongues finally freed from their shackles will now tell a truth so easy to guess and forget the filthy kraut lies that it takes about two grains of good French common sense to see through. Signed, Petio. <laughs> A.K.A. him, the man I was talking about this whole time. Based on the letter, investigators kind of assumed Petio was working for the French army or the French forces of the interior. That's the FFI. Mm-hmm. And boy, was he ever. Dr. Petio was now living under the name Henry Valerie a captain in the French army specializing in interrogations and counter espionage. Yeah, so he just wants to torture some people. And he was so well regarded, uh-huh. this captain, <laughs> Henri Valerie, that he was contacted by French investigators to join the sting operation to capture himself. <laughs> Okay, so this whole thing... Did they, did, they, did they just not have photographs at the time? What did he just... I'm going to get to it. Did he have a top, top hat? Was it a Superman situation? Sir! <laughs> this is the one, news. All right. It all started back in 19, March 1944 with the discoveries of the bodies at 21 Rue Le Soeur, mm-hmm. in the princess house. So right. in the first few days after escaping police, Dr. Petiu was able to stay with friends. But after these horrific stories about him at the newspapers, he's in a tight spot. People Mm. are like, Matt, 
I don't really want you to stay at my house. So he ended up glomming on to a former patient of his, this elderly house painter who had a dingy apartment in Paris. So Patio talked the painter into letting him sleep on an old mattress in this guy's living room after convincing him, hey man, like the papers are fake. I'm a freedom fighter on the run from the Germans. So he sat on this guy's floor for months, eating up his like meager rations and growing out this big, bushy beard, <laughs> bragging about killing Germans for the resistance <laughs> and then just like plotting his next move, digging his fingers in his beard, just like my husband's doing right now. <laughs> Twirling and pulling. As the city rose up against the Germans and the summer went on, Petit started venturing out into public, right? By then, he looked completely different. He had lost a ton of weight, and he had this long, black, bushy beard. And later, the painter said Patu started, you know, going out, coming home late, coming home with stuff. He brought home some grenades. <laughs> he brought home a big old drum. And... Then he came home one day with a card. He said he enlisted in the FFI, the French Forces of the Interior. And this is a like a French, it's basically French resistance fighters got more formally organized towards the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. And they started going under the name FFI and they worked in concert with the French army. So everybody was kind of mm -hmm. working together. The painter was like, awesome, you joined the FFI. Go clear your name, man. Get out of my house. <laughs> and Patu was like, oh, you know, cool, I know. But the time's just not quite right. But I will because, you know, obviously now uh -huh. everything's all good. So, but he didn't do it. And then after the liberation of France in the late summer, the painter then came home to find Patu gone and all the stuff stolen. So after... Wait, what do you mean all this stuff? Patu just robbed him and left. <laughs> <laughs> he really is into the robbing component of this. It's like, it's like seems to be also... That would be correct. Yeah. He loves killing, torturing, burning, maiming, and he'll, he'll steal your stuff even if you're just a broke painter. <laughs> yeah. I would say that that would be true. So after he leaves the painter's house, yes. Patu snuck on an army base, goes around and starts talking to people. He gets the hot goss about which doctors in the French army had been captured by the Germans. And then this man goes to the captured doctor's family's houses, pretending to be a representative from the Red Cross and asking for the missing doctor's identification papers. Uh, saying he needed it in order to facilitate their release from the Germans. Oh, that's so sleazy. Can you imagine that? I know. And so after securing the paperwork from one desperate family, he used it to quietly rejoin the ranks of the French army and then use the alias Hun uh, Henry Henri. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try it. Henry Valerie, mm -hmm. where he was quickly promoted to the rank of captain for his exemplary work, given two secretaries to handle his impressive 
patient load. Well, and also it's amazing that he's able to do all that while still being captured by the Germans. Yeah, right. Well, what he did is he basically used it to like re-enroll, but then he's just started going by another name. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he managed to do that, but he would just introduce himself as a different name and then like quietly sort of like have his paperwork under this other name. I know. And now you just like, or they're just like, yeah, but what's your phone number? Do you, have, do you have your phone number with us? Okay, well, can we try a different phone number? Yeah, it was like a lot easier, I think. Yeah. And I think maybe he can say, oh, it's because of X, Y, and Z, and I'm in counter-espionage or something. I don't really know. I didn't really get that part. Okay, so he's trucking, right? Mm-hmm. And things are going really well. He's very well-liked. However, in this short span of time, still, like, I mean, I'm talking like maybe six weeks, complaints filed against the popular captain during this time show he may have been using his newfound status to terrorize French citizens. Mm -hmm. One woman claimed she was robbed of three million francs worth of jewelry during a bogus FFI search of her home. She said, you know, she's at home and Mm -hmm. these FFI officers came in, they stole her jewelry and she went in to the French army offices to complain and the captain she spoke with was literally wearing her rings. What? And the captain told her, quote, He was just wearing this lady's rings? Like I think men's rings but because she, she had a bunch of jewelry. Okay. Right? And the guy says, Madame. Madame. I, Madame, I have a bit of advice for you. Withdraw your complaint, sell your cafe and disappear. Damn. And she's like, no, I just, (laughs) like, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And when she refused, he threw her in prison with no paperwork or anything. And she sat there in prison for two months until some authorities found her and realized she hadn't been like booked into prison or Mm -hmm. anything like that. There was no paperwork. Why are you here? And they let her out. And that ring wearing captain was, of course, Dr. <laughs> then, in mid-September, a group of FFI men from Dr. Petu's sector, who were apparently working under his command, went out and blew open the safe of the mayor of Tessencourt, like, went to this guy's house, <laughs> blew open his safe with hand grenades, uh-huh. stole millions of dollars, sorry, millions of francs in cash and valuables, and then took him out to a country road and executed him. Oh my God. And there happened to be a group, like three local teens on the road and they saw what happened. So the kids go to the military offices and they report the murder and they were immediately sent up to Dr. Petu's office who listened to their story and then threw them in jail for being no good teenagers making stuff up. So this dirty, rotten <laughs> bastard. The money was never found in that instance. Um, R.I.P. the mayor. The officers were later intercepted attempting to flee Paris. And when they were interrogated, they told authorities that their captain told them, hey, guys, I'm a resistance fighter who's killed 63 men. My real name is Dr. Marcel Petiu. And that these guys were like, I'm pretty sure a bunch of guys in the French army also know he's a serial killing doctor yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, well, we're not going to deal with that right now. <laughs> but that's also like in the 
So they yeah. knew where he was, and that's didn't... the rumor. Like okay. a lot of this stuff that happens, and you know, we'll, we'll kind of talk about this as we go. He skated a lot by just like it never really going as far as a trial. Like just people have been like, ah, never mind. We're just not going to deal with that. <laughs> so he just like didn't. They're like, we're already trying for this other thing. That's weird, but he's already, you know what I mean? Like, they're right. Already- they're not trying to maybe arrest him for the mayor thing, but they might be like, oh, okay, well, that's the guy we're looking for. Let's just go arrest him. Well, a lot of the stuff is coming in after the fact. Okay. You know, right. So by October, Dr. Patu had suffered no repercussions from those complaints. He was climbing the rank of the French military, basking in the admiration and respect of his subordinates who ate up his stories of fighting for France and the resistance during German occupation. Mm. He was firing (laughs) off sassy letters to the press and the third person, and he was even tapped to join the task force to track himself down. Splendid. But... (laughs) Before this incestuous investigative task force could make its big bust, Dr. Patu was arrested on a train platform in a still, completely unexplained, bizarre setup. Okay. Okay. On October 31st, 1944, four officers from the French military sat on a train platform just outside the eastern edge of Paris for three hours waiting. Around 10.15 a.m., Dr. Patu, who now, as Captain Henry Valery, sported a thick, bushy beard and looked nothing like his previous descriptions, stepped onto the platform. The French officers, led by a Captain Simonin, it's okay, Meryl. It's okay. It's Somehow okay. identified Dr. Petu, handcuffed him, beat him, tied his feet together, and dragged him to a car. The officers arrested, held, and interrogated Dr. Petu with absolutely no permission uh-huh. or jurisdiction to do so. Nobody so they, were, knew, they just went rogue. Though nobody even knew they were there. Yeah, and they were there waiting all those hours for him. Like yes. they were like, we know it's him, let's just do this thing. Right, but they also had no current photograph of him. Yeah. Nobody knew what he looked like in his current form. But they knew. They knew. Afterwards, they dropped him off at police headquarters Police later learned Captain Simonin wasn't an officer at all. He was a well-known German collaborator, a Frenchman responsible for leaking information leading to hundreds of deportations and executions of his fellow Frenchmen known only as Soutif. Damn. Soutif disappeared. And to this day, Nobody knows what that was all about. So, yeah. So that's weird. So I wonder if he really was seeing maybe if this doctor had been killing Germans or not. Maybe that's why. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. They don't but know. I'm going to go ahead and just say that. I mean, because he's, he's obviously a German sympathizer, if not just straight up on their team. And maybe they were just like, hey, just just we know where he is. The police don't, but we do. So will you just go get him and see if he actually was killing Germans because we don't really know? I mean, I think at this point mm-hmm. in in the end of World War II, I yeah. think it's like their last concern. 
I mean, uh, they've been expelled sure, from sure, Paris. Sure, They're sure. being driven back. Yeah. To Maybe Germany? he was trying to find someone specific. You know what I mean? Like, hey, this person that we were looking for or something, something, you know, like, do you know this guy? Did it you kill be. him? That's kind of what I was thinking. But nobody knows. Nobody knows. And it was, he was a totally fake officer. Yes. And that's the only way they found him. And guess what? What? When Dr. Petu was arrested, he was found with a loaded gun, about 50 different ID cards and different names, including doctored IDs from some of his alleged victims and military orders sending him to Indochina. Mm. He was more than likely about to be completely gone. Oh, damn. They probably just about like got at the him. train station yes. on his way out of town. He also had a letter that he was drafting accusing Commissaire Massou of working for the Germans <laughs> as an informant. Of course. <laughs> so they got him really at the last minute. Uh-huh. Basically, Dr. Patu's version of events was pretty saucy. That he was a hero fighting for the resistance and that no one could prove otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the thing was, the evidence in each individual case against him was fairly circumstantial and his story was pretty good. He'd been telling his stories of being a resistance fighter for years at this point, mm-hmm. And he had a rebuttal for pretty much everything. And the political cr- climate was very friendly and lenient to people who killed for the resistance in wartime. So if mm-hmm. he could find a way to sort of say like, oh, well, they had a connection to the Germans. Well, they had a connection to the Germans. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the whole narrative shifts, right? Right. Except for they're just finding the clothing and belongings of people like the guy, I can't remember what they owned together, a bakery or something. There was like a Jewish man who's like fleeing Nazi persecution and he like had his things. What he's saying is like, oh, he's a known collaborator. Right. That's it's I know so annoying. I know. But like yeah. that's what that's his angle. Okay. Right? So Batu said that he joined the resistance in nineteen forty after the Germans arrived and provided false medical certificates to help Frenchmen avoid forced labor in Germany, which is true. He did do that. He then said, you know, he gathered military info from the wounded and sick he treated who were coming back from Germany and passed that along to resistance fighters. So, okay. Like, usually the wounded were sent to specific military doctors, but okay, fine. (laughs) And then he got a little freaky. You know, he starts telling investigators, okay, I invented a secret weapon that could wipe out the entire German army. It's compact and portable. You know, it's like he's like, it's very small. They can all fit on a flatbed truck and kill everybody. (laughs) And it was so awesome that the Americans were in talks to use it. I talked to this guy at Uh the... uh, consulate but unfortunately bureaucracy got in the way the weapon was never used he also refused to say what the weapon was because he for security reasons uh-huh, right um Petu claimed to have received lethal hand-to-hand combat training as part of his resistance membership from an anonymous secret agent from london again someone he ca- didn't know the name can't tell him <laughs> okay. who they are <laughs> He said he was expertly trained in machine guns, hand grenades, and plastic explosives. He spent his time sabotaging boxcars full of German ammunition and inventing explosive devices. Eventually, he said he was appointed as a leader in a secret, independently operating 
execution group um, that operated sort of as a subset of the resistance. Mm-hmm. And the group's main objective was murdering German collaborators. So at the time, the slang for an informer uh, in France was the French word for fly. So the group named itself uh, Fly Talks in English. Okay. T A L K S. Fly Talks. Fly Talks. Did you just say P? No, T. Fly. Fly Talks. T A L K S. No. Talks like T O X, like kill. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was like, these flies, the fly talks. Oh, we'll make the fly talk. (laughs) For some reason, I thought you were trying to spell fly with a T (laughs) and an A. I was just like, what are you saying? (laughs) What's going on right here? Like rain or something like that. Sure, fly fly talks. talks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That was that was special. (laughs) That was cute. Very cute. Uh, so Fly Talks was the name of the secret, (laughs) like within the resistance, a secret independently operating murder group. Right. And Patu said they would sit in a truck outside the Gestapo offices and watch to see who went in and out. And then they would follow anyone they thought might be working with the Germans and then put them through a secret test. So what they do is they follow them, they grab them and arrest them pretending to be plain clothes german officers and if the person was like oh no man no i'm one of you we're good we're good then they'd know that they were a german Mm -hmm. you know collaborator right and they'd beat them to death with a rubber hose filled with sand and bury them in the woods in a spot a few miles west of paris okay so there's just other dead bodies he has beyond what they've already found in the house you're gonna love how this unfolds okay very different uh it's like an onion so he said through this method he killed about 63 people half german half french petu said even with all this he did actually legitimately find time to help run an escape organization sending people to South America and helping to facilitate false paperwork. But he actually never met anyone from the organization face to face. He said he recruited Fourier and Pintard to help initially with fly talks because if you remember, Pintard was this makeup artist and Fourier was a barber. So he thought they could help with fly talks with disguises. But he was like, oh, they just wanted it for money. Um, <laughs> right. And he's like, they didn't care about his the, one friends in the whole world. He's just throwing under the bus. And he's like, but it worked out, though, because they were so crass. They mostly just attracted and recruited informers anyway. So they just kind of like brought us the right kind of people. Okay. And he said, you know, all the underworld folks that they attracted initially, the pimps and prostitutes prostitutes that he killed in his escape organization scheme were really just looking to learn the escape route and expose it to the Gestapo. And then the Jewish people that he killed in the same scheme were all just like traitors working with the Germans generally that he knew of. And okay, so okay. it was fine. Like he was definitely like doing resistance. Okay. Work. So is he saying, but there were some people who really needed to escape. And, and he helped and them. Th- so they're, okay. So Those are saying, legitimate. It would be hilarious. He's like, yeah, no, everyone was, you know, we had to kill them all. He's like, I killed a lot of them, but not <laughs> all of them. 
So after he was arrested by the <laughs> Germans, Petu said Fly Talks fell apart. It was such a top secret group. It mm-hmm. couldn't function without its leader holding them together. And then when he was released from prison, everyone from the group was scattered to the winds. So Petu claims the Germans were the ones who placed the bodies in 21 Rue Sur to frame him. Okay. Not him. Yes. He buried all the bodies from his personal murderers in the woods. So when he found the bodies at his home, he kind of freaked. He asked his brother for the quick lime, and then he tried to burn them, and that was a bust. After he told the police about the resistance group and they let him escape on his bicycle, Patu said he rejoined the resistance. He faked his way into the military to help further the cause and never turned himself in because he thought it was obvious to everyone he was innocent and the Germans had framed him. Plus, he still had political enemies like Commissaire Massu, <laughs> and he knew it wasn't safe to come out of hiding it. Yeah, he's the worst Nazi of them all. So investigators who looked into his resistance story yeah. came up with nothing, though, literally nothing, and it could be corroborated. Not a single person in the resistance currently alive could corroborate anything that he said. And by his own admission, everyone that he worked with was either anonymous or, or dead. Yeah. Yeah. His contact at the Argentinian consulate, you know, that he was doing the paperwork with, he, that person just didn't exist. No one from the American side who was in France at the time had any idea about any weapons talks with a Marcel (laughs) Patu. No secret <laughs> weapons talks with the Americans, period. Yeah. They found no bodies buried in the woods west of Paris. His terminology regarding like the functions of the resistance was all wildly incorrect. And he actually didn't really know anything about how the resistance functioned at all. <laughs> That's, oh, no, it's just like pretending you're a gang member and just like trying to use all the slang. And then the investigators are like, yeah, we know some gang members. They don't use any of those words. I, what are you talking about? And no one from within the resistance had ever heard of fly talks. Like, yeah, no one in the resistance believed there would ever have been even been some independently operating execution squad in the first place. They yeah. were like, we, they, that just wouldn't exist. Well, yeah, the, I think the closest thing to that was like that weird doctor that killed all those people in his house. Yeah, Could right? that be who you're talking about? <laughs> they're like, uh, actually, yes. So they, they put a pin in it. They're still looking because they're mm. trying to figure out. I mean, it's confusing and there's lots of stuff going on. But, you know, this initial search is like, this is all really off, right? Well, it's just just all lies. Yeah, but they're still going to be like okay. trying to figure it out. Okay. Betu was placed on death row to be held until trial where he sat and smoked in his cell and wrote poetry and also wrote a book on statistics and gambling, which uh, translated into English was titled Chance Defeated. Okay. Okay. I mean, did he... Was he a gambler also? Apparently it was not a very good book, but he wrote it. <laughs> but but did, just, did he have any, this is hilarious. It's like, oh, like he, it's just, what? He's just like decided to write a book on gambling. He did. <laughs> okay. 
While investigators tried to dig deeper. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine if I was on death row and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to write a book about like, I don't know, breeding thoroughbred horses or something. (laughs) He's like, what? What? Since when are you into that? This book, honestly, the more I read it, I was just like, what is this book? (laughs) Who is this? This is such a strange book. Okay, so while investigators tried to dig deeper into this fly tox mystery... They also started to put together a profile of Marcel Petou's early life, which thankfully was a bit easier and less mysterious. And this is what they gathered from hundreds of former neighbors and patients, records, newspaper articles, the whole nine, mm-hmm. all in service of prosecuting him for the murders. So we'll start with his early life. A lot of the really early stuff they think might be rumors sort of created after the fact. Mm-hmm. He was rumored to be a nasty kid, cruel to animals. His teachers say he was smart, but very strange, not social. He was known to pass pornographic pictures around class. He brought a gun to school once, was known to wet his pants until he was 12. Um, He was kicked out of several schools for behavior problems. And at one point, you know, when he was a little older, he was convicted of stealing mail. And it was a he was facing prison time Mm -hmm. and a court appointed psychiatrist after an an interview labeled him an abnormal youth and mentally ill. And after that diagnosis diagnosis, he wasn't punished. So he went on to be expelled from different schools until he managed to graduate in 1915. Patu joined the French military in 1916 and was sent to the front lines to fight in world war one where he was hit in the foot with a grenade and then sprayed with poisonous gas. During his recovery, he started showing signs of mental illness in the hospital. So he spent some time in a military prison for stealing blankets. And then from there, he was moved to a psychiatric unit and diagnosed with a bunch of different things like depression and you know phobias, different things like that. And after a couple of months, they sent him right back up to the front lines. And there he had a nervous breakdown Mm. and shot himself in the foot. Mm. So he comes back. He recovers. They try to send him back to the front lines again in 1919, this time as a machine gunner. But he really couldn't hang. He couldn't do it. And he, he was sent to another psychiatric unit there. And he was diagnosed with a whole litany of different um, mental disorders, amnesia, depression, paranoia, suicidal tendencies. And it was recommended he be released from the army. So he was released in 1919, after which he received a 100% disability pension after the examining psychiatrist recommended he be indefinitely hospitalized. Mm. But in 1920... After it was recommended he be institutionalized, Marcel Patou was not. Instead, he got an internship at a mental hospital as a medical student. (laughs) So there were these shortened, condensed versions of medical school those days designed for soldiers returning from the war. Medical school 
in this case lasted eight months and then they had a required medical internship that took about two years. So the whole program could be completed in just under three years. But miraculously, Patu did it even faster, somehow completing the entire program and earning his medical degree in just 15 months. Okay, so he's cheating, obviously. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and guess that he wasn't brilliant, right? But, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Was he secretly brilliant? I don't think so. I I don't think so either. But he is succeeding at this weird cheating thing. Like, that's crazy because you're basically describing a person who never seemed to function ever in society in any of his things. You know, he was getting into fights and like everyone was like, go away. We don't want you here. This is terrible. And then he goes to war and, you know, that's shocking and horrifying. And, you know, he has this psychotic breaks and he's never okay. And then something just happens where he's like, actually, I can do this doctor thing. And now I know how to cheat the system and come out on top faster than other people. Mm -hmm. That's crazy that Mm -hmm. there's like suddenly he's thriving in his surroundings. Yeah, it's really interesting. From there, Dr. Patu moved to a little village of 4,200 people, villeneuve sur Very good. To open a practice in the town, you know, 4,200 only had two other fairly elderly doctors. And when he hit the town, he made flyers and they read, quote, Dr. Patu is young, and only a young doctor can keep up to date on the latest methods born of a progress which marches with giant strides. This is why intelligent <laughs> patients have confidence in him. Dr. Patu treats but does not exploit his patients. He treated the poor for free, took patients on Sundays, did nighttime house calls. He enrolled <laughs> in surprise. He exploited every single one of his patients. (laughs) He enrolled them all in medical assistance so he'd be paid by the state. So he was double paid when his patients paid him out of pocket. Uh And all of the poor people he was helping, he was also paid by the state. And he was also out there prescribing hell and narcotics. Hell yeah. And very strong, sometimes almost deadly doses. And Sometimes actually deadly doses where like pharmacists would call him and be like, hey, man, this is going to kill somebody. Yeah, that's really, really horrific. He never really asked what was wrong in consultations. He'd just be like, I know what's wrong. And then just give you just like a super high dose of morphine. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> those, those real doctors, like the elderly doctors, like seeing those flyers and they're just like, yeah, OK, but I'm a, an actual doctor. Nuts to that. He was interesting. He was really popular, but he didn't ever really have a lot of close friends. He tended to be kind of argumentative. He he always wore really shabby, like poorly cut suits that Mm -hmm. were really horribly stained and dirty. Like he was a really dirty guy. Yeah. He wore the same clothes to treat patients 
that they did to do really dirty stuff like work on his car so they'd be like covered in green. <laughs> he's, just, just a, he's just a mechanic. Yeah. Well, he drove a yellow sports car that was like his big indulgence uh-huh. and he hated headlights so he never used them and he got into dozens of accidents around town. That's what he was known for. It's like driving around at night like crashing and stuff. But That's hilarious to hate something. It's like, that's <laughs> so funny. But his patients loved him. Uh-huh. He was hugely popular. Well, he's giving them all the good drugs. Then he ran for mayor and won. Of course he did. <laughs> mayor uh, Morphine. During his tenure, he stole a drum. Seems like a theme for him. He uh, cut the electricity during an opponent's speech. He did some cool stuff, like he installed a sewer system and renovated the elementary school, but he did both without any proper approval or any permitting. He just did them. <laughs> okay. Uh, at one point, his young housekeeper disappeared and the headless corpse of a young woman was found in the local river. God damn it. But no one found a connection. R.I.P. And then one of the townspeople was robbed and beaten to death with a hammer the murder was never solved, but investigators, while they're kind of like researching for his murder trial, they later found that for some reason, Dr. Patu published a series of anonymous letters back then in the local paper talking trash about the inept police department, making fun of the hammer victim, describing her wounds in really intense detail and then concluding the murder would never be solved, just like the disappearance of poor Dr. Petu's housekeeper, Lucette. Damn, RIP that woman too. Yeah, so like this is the kind of thing that yeah. happens, right? Like he's never charged with any of that stuff, yeah. but like why would he write those letters? Right. Anyway, so the mayor married Georgette, his wife in 1927. They had a son together. In 1930, Petu was sentenced to three months in prison for trying to scam a refund on three cans of oil. It was really dumb. <laughs> like he just, he got the oil yeah. and then tried to say he didn't get the oil so yeah. he could get his money back. He made a lot of money. So they were locking people up in France for that back then? Well, they gave him a harsher sentence because he's the mayor and they okay. wanted to set an example, okay. which is I think the opposite of our country. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But he claimed temporary insanity because of his medical record Mm -hmm. and his sentence was suspended and he was eventually acquitted. After that, there were like some complaints about someone stealing gasoline from the city and there was some stolen city hall property. And eventually Petu got indignant about accusations and resigned as mayor And after he resigned, they found he had done some very sloppy accounting as mayor. The city's accounts were a wreck. And the implication was he was skimming, but the accounts were so messy, nothing conclusive came of Mm -hmm. it. But that didn't matter. Patu's career was already taking off. Well, his political career. On October 18th, 1931, he was elected to sort of the equivalent of a U.S. congressman. He was elected to general counselor serving the entire Yon region. He was the youngest out of all 34 elected that term. So that was like a really big deal. (laughs) And then high off that win, he ran for mayor again of the city 
and lost. And then fairly quickly after that, he was convicted of stealing electricity from the city and sentenced to 15 days in prison. Fatu appealed his sentence for over a year and was eventually removed from his post as general counselor. Oops. But that wasn't too much of a bummer. He hadn't gone to any meetings or done anything for that job for like a year. Anyways, he was over it. In 1933, Patu left that two-bit town for the City of Lights. That was it. Uh. In Paris, he opened a new practice and got to work finding new patients. He made another wacky flyer claiming he could deliver babies pain-free and had miracle cures, hint morphine. Yeah. And then he was like, I've got top-of-the-line treatments, all these different rays, infrared rays ultraviolet rays, ionization, diametherapy, like just crazy stuff. He's just saying words. Uh, And this is just a quote from the book that I really Uh like. Quote, he mounted a huge brass plaque outside his building listing so many improbable credentials that another doctor in the area complained to the medical association (laughs) and he was forced to take it down. (laughs) Like clearly you, that's not real. Like, no one is all of those things. But it totally worked. People flocked to him and they loved him. It does my heart good to hear that people like this <laughs> were getting scammed in France. Because this just sounds like such like an American scam story. <laughs> you know, like such an American hustler. We've done a million episodes where people just act like this and sort of <laughs> succeed. And it just, you know, just... You know, I'm glad we're all human, I guess. I guess. We all share the same characteristics. <laughs> Just terrible people. Uh, in 1936, Petu had his first big Paris no-no. He was walking along the street one day, and he swiped a book from an outdoor rack at a bookstore, and a detective caught him. So the, the dire- detective came to arrest Petu. Petu. Patuk tried to be like, hey, man, oh, it's all good. I'll just put the book back. Yeah. He said, no, (laughs) No, you stole it. So now you're going to get arrested. Yeah. And so Patuk turned around and strangled the detective. (laughs) And the detective didn't die, but he strangled him pretty good. Damn. And then Patuk ran off. So they ended up catching him and he avoided charges again by again saying, hey, I'm a formal mental patient and I just had a bout of temporary insanity. He claimed he was deep in thought working on a suction machine to treat chronic constipation. Oh, nice. And he gave police an intricate diagram of the machine to prove his claim. You know, I don't disbelieve him there. I feel like he probably was... I also think it was real because he had the drawing. That's what I'm saying. I bet you he really was really thinking about that. He said he was obsessing over his poop machine when he inadvertently picked up the book. Uh-huh. And, you know, it didn't really make things better for Patu, right? <laughs> of course not. Because, yeah. you know, the authorities decided he needed to be institutionalized for a while before he continued to see his patients. It's like, oh, I have <laughs> yeah, a temporary right. insanity. I got this poop suction machine. This is a drawing. And they're like, I think maybe this is all all bad. Yeah. Not a good idea. So they found this like kind of nice place for him to go. And he gets institutionalized. Well, it turns out he's there for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So he's in there seven months, eight months. And he starts to get super mad. 
and frustrated. He's like feeling like he's being held against his will. He's cured already. So he writes a letter to the president of France. All this stuff happens. And he ends up getting a chance to be reevaluated. And the new doctors that are brought in evaluate him. And they say, yeah, he's not insane. But he is a liar and a faker and he's manipulating the system. Mm -hmm. He should be released because he's not insane. However, in the future, you know, anyone dealing with him should take his whole history into account, including his military history, Mm -hmm. and really start to question his claims of temporary insanity because they all (laughs) seem to benefit him. Yeah, yeah. Every single time he does, even going back to his childhood days Mm. with the male situation, Mm -hmm. every single time he does, it gets him out of some sort of criminal issue, you know, uh, so... We just say, yeah, he's a sociopath or whatever. Look at this whole, look at the whole scope of the yeah. thing, right? <sighs> so we're going back to the present. This is what they know now of this man mm-hmm. who says, "I am a hero," <laughs> and they go, "Okay, great. Well, this is the this is what we know." Yeah. And then there's the mysterious fly talks thing. We can't really uh, figure that out, but this is what we know about this guy. After going through mountains of evidence and considering everything, Patu was accused of murdering 27 people for the purpose of gaining an estimated 200 million francs in jewelry, precious metals, and cash. So individually, the charges, like we said, were, they were a little flimsy, but as a whole, they built an overwhelming case full of similarities. So remember, we're talking about 27 victims. Yeah. I'm just going to give you like a sampling of some of the victims because we haven't talked a lot about them. We talked a little bit about it in part one. Yeah. So you'll see how you'll start to see these things start to be connected. So you had the Wolf family. So that was a wealthy Jewish family who fled Amsterdam after mass raids and deportations in the Netherlands sent thousands of Jews to concentration camps in Poland and Germany. And they converted everything they had into cash, losing the majority of their wealth and managed to smuggle themselves into Paris. They met Dr. Patu through a friend of a friend and he agreed to help get them out of Europe. He told them they could take all the money they had, like all the money they wanted, but as is familiar, only two suitcases apiece and all the personal markings on their clothes had to be removed. They also had to leave all their identification papers behind, saying he'd give them new ones. And their family jewelry was sewn into the shoulders of the men's jackets. They were never seen again. Mm. And this pattern, again, like repeated over and over again. Yeah. yeah. So this is a little different, but sort of explained some things, right? So... so Another person was Paul Leon Braunberger. So he was a middle-aged doctor who was an acquaintance of Dr. Petus. So he got a phone call in the summer of 1942 from a person on behalf of an anonymous patient, a patient who wanted to remain anonymous, who said they desperately needed to see him. And the man on the phone asked to meet the doctor at a nearby metro station. And again, it's like 
during a time when lots of people it was just really chaotic and some people had a need for secrecy, right? So he didn't really question this sort of like person saying mm-hmm. anonymous patient or whatever. So he left with a medical bag and just a little bit of cash and he was never seen again after that day. Mm. Later, his wife received a letter in very strange, wobbly handwriting and with strange phrasing telling her to pack all their most valuable possessions in two suitcases and prepare to leave the country and don't tell anyone about the letter. Next, so she she's like, this is super odd. And, and she, you know, tells police. She tries to figure out mm-hmm. what's going on. And what she finds out next is that a letter was sent to <laughs> her acquaintance who happens to be Dr. Petu's cousin. Okay, mm-hmm. so this guy who the wife knows is Dr. Patu's cousin. Yes. And it's allegedly from this missing Dr. Braunberger. And the letter basically said, hey, friend, you know, I heard your cousin, Dr. Patu, just bought a house that he's not living in, in the 16th arrondissement near Rue Could you ask him if it would be okay if I stored all of my furniture there. I need to do it ASAP. Thank you. And this was super weird for two reasons. So one, Dr. Braunberger had recently been notified by the Germans that he would soon be banned from practicing medicine for being a Jew. And he was already planning on leaving France. So the family had already shipped all of their valuables out of the country. His wife didn't have anything left to pack in suitcases, and her husband knew that. So right. like, that letter was really Like strange. what furniture? Well, the valuables, when you mm. said pack two cases of mm, valuables, mm. right? And then two, Dr. Braunberger and Dr. Petu's cousin, this guy who got the letter, they were pretty hardcore, well-known frenemies. Mm-hmm. Like they fought, they were like really didn't like each other. Right, and now there's this really nice letter. It's yeah. Like, Can you do me this this solid? He, there was no way he'd be writing him a friendly letter asking for a favor like that. And then furthermore, you know, this cousin was like dead sure that he would never have said anything about Dr. Petu's house to Dr. Braunberger. Like Mm -hmm. there was no way. Then later, Dr. Braunberger's hat and shirt were found at the princess house at Mm. 21 Rulisor, right? That was also a place that was packed with furniture. Right, RIP. Early on, there was a group of about nine pimps and prostitutes and underworld types who paid Dr. Petu to shuttle them to South America. We talked about them a little bit in the first episode. You know, friends said they were also told to show sew cash into their shoulder pads, hide gold bars in the heels of their shoes before departing on their journeys to Argentina, never to be seen again. Petu was known to wear some of the missing group's jewelry, claiming they were given as gifts. One of the women from this group, Josephine Amy Grippe, packed a one-of-a-kind black satin dress embroidered with golden swallows that was later found in the basement of the princess house. One way Patu convinced this particular group their friends had arrived to Argentina because they would go in like like a couple pairs at a time. He would convince them that they arrived to Argentina safely 
by presenting them with a half a hundred dollar franc note with a sun drawn on the front that had been torn in half. Something he said was a signal from the escape organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the police found the other half of a torn hundred franc note in Petit's apartment sure, after yeah. they searched it. Yeah. And finally, the Neller family. So they disappeared from Paris after working with Dr. Petit to get out of the country. The family were French Jews and by... The summer of 1942, they felt life in France under German occupation was too dangerous and made plans to move out of Europe with their seven-year-old son with the help of Dr. Petiu. So the doctor had them pack up all of their most valuable possessions into four suitcases and tried to take their furniture away in a handcart, but the the landlady stopped him. Friends got postcards from the Nellers, after they left, with strange grammar and phrasing, and with Margaret Neller misspelling her own name, mm. also not at all in her handwriting. The Nellers' bodies were never identified or technically found, but three weeks after they disappeared, authorities found three dismembered bodies in the River Seine, a man, woman, and a young boy. Mm. The Neller's seven-year-old son, Kurt's pajamas, were later found in the basement at the princess house. R.I.P. And so you just start to see these little connections and repetitive things. Yeah, right. So all as single cases, you know, what he'll start to do is be like, oh, I knew the woman with the black dress. She was working with the Germans. Mm -hmm. And you can't say da-da-da-da-da or... I helped the Nellers get out of the country. Why would they take dirty pajamas with them on the trip? You Mm -hmm. know, like he'll start to have excuses for each one. Yeah. You break it down. But as a totality, it's a very strong, you know, like it's a lot stronger of a case. Mm -hmm. So the trial began March 18th, 1946. Now I'm going to do my best to describe this. Hold on. Is this the crazy trial? Yeah. Let's take the shot. Okay. (laughs) We're so tired. All right. So what this was. This? It looks like yogurt. I know it's old smoky <laughs> Tennessee moonshine. It was essentially buy one get one free at Bevmo. They can't legally do that, so it's like buy one for two dollars and get the next one for five cents or something. So this is two dollars. Uh, yeah, it's the. It was the cheapest worst thing. It's in a little um, uh, mason jar. White chocolate strawberry cream moonshine. Why? Why? No one knows. Here we go. Yeah, it looks like a little jam jar. Oh, it is white. Cheers. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sweet. I don't hate that. I don't hate it, but it definitely, definitely for being, it's not even very high proof, and for being a low proof, sweet flavored thing, it still burns like cheap alcohol. (laughs) That's really funny. It does burn. The sugar is really what got me. Yeah. All right. Okay. Like all the optic nerves in my head are buzzing. <laughs> all right, let's hear about this trial. Okay, so <laughs> tell me about this trial. Man, wow. Waiting for you said it was a crazy trial, man. Let's go. <laughs> I do my best to mm. describe this. Okay. So as an American, it's a pretty different vibe than what we're used to. <laughs> so I'm gonna do my best to describe this, and I don't know. It's old, right? It's 1946. I don't know if trials are still like this in Mm -hmm. France. And I don't know if I'm maybe being offensive by saying this, but I just thought it was such a funny trial. As an American, it's pretty different vibe than what we're used to. From what I can tell, basically, you're allowed to talk back. Uh, So while we're talking like trial stuff, just imagine like 
everyone can sigh and roll their eyes and <laughs> talk and like launch into a long story and argue and also other stuff. Like you can play an April Fool's joke on a guard and you can walk around all day with a jackass note pinned to his back <laughs> and no one will say anything and journalists can make out in the press box without getting yelled at. It's a very different world. <laughs> Yeah, well, we just saw that movie, Anatomy of a Fall, mm -hmm. which was beautiful. It's really two and good. a half hour movie, and it's um, it's definitely intense. It's definitely a drama, but a big <laughs> part of it was a courtroom. You know, it was a court drama or whatever, and it felt like, and that was in France in like modern day, in modern times, and it felt like the defendant was sort of always on the stand. Like they would constantly go, like have a witness who they're questioning, and then go to the defendant and be like well what do you think about that we'll explain that it was like the like defendant was always there yeah. yeah yeah from what i've read it i uh -huh. mean at least this trial's kind of seen the same way mm -hmm. <sighs> anyway i don't know if it's still like this but that's a description from 1946 and i'm living for it even if it is a little dramatized mm -hmm. so here's how it breaks down along one wall in the courtroom is all the evidence from this trial. And remember, we literally have three tons of evidence. Clothing, suitcases, personal belongings, all with a whack-ass <laughs> chain of custody yeah. and all like precariously piled on top of itself, threatening to topple over. Mm -hmm. And then in the center of the room, and I believe it's a tiered room, so it's also like on the highest tier above everyone else, is this big, long table. And in the center of the table is this guy they call the president of the tribunal. Okay. And I'm pretty positive he's a magistrate, which is a, a type of judge. And he conducts everything, maintains order, and helps direct questions. And he's flanked by two other magistrates. And they all wear these bright red robes. And in the French system, they don't do, like these magistrates don't do much during the trial. They mostly shine during deliberation. So no judge, Judy, like bossy, I must have order in my courtroom stuff. It seems like, you know, they remind you to be civil mm -hmm. and they might be like kind of sarcastic and leave in a huff if you don't do it. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, according to this, people aren't like, excuse me bailiff you're like they're yeah. not like super sassy yeah the lady the uh you know whatever the actress that played the french judge in the movie we just saw was she was on top of it she was pretty sassy she was you know but she was strict but she also she played, had her opinions they too. weren't doing a lot of like i object sustained you know like it's not as formal she's kind of like oh she he, she can talk yeah you know okay so on the second tier this is another interesting thing on the second tier, in the front and below the long table are the civil suit lawyers. So in France, the victims and their families can have lawyers um, represent their case at criminal trials. And if there's a conviction, they can request damages. Like the whole thing happens in the same trial. Yeah. So they can like request damages at at the trial and uh -huh. then get their damages assigned at the same trial. Uh-huh. So in this case, you have 27 victims. So there was like over a dozen <laughs> lawyers and then like more associates uh -huh. representing the victims. So too many to sit comfortably on their tier. So some of them had to like sit in the piles of evidence, like on <laughs> folding chairs. So it's like wild, wild times, right? 
And then the defense has its own little box opposite to the judges' tables. And the, the, the accused sits alone solo in their own little box on the same level as the judge's table. So that's what you're saying. It always mm-hmm. feels like they're on the stand, yeah. right? Because they're up there alone. And then the defense team sits on the level below on the same level as the civil suit lawyers. And then the press sits up above on the accused left side. So they're like kind of always in the mix. And the witnesses have to stand at a railing on the floor and then like look up at everybody like a little kid. And then that's how it does <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so whatever. <clears throat> like a lot of the trials we cover, this is a big one. It was packed. There were like 230 combined like witness press and visiting legal folks and 400 spectators. And the poor president of the tribunal <laughs> had tried to keep things orderly by printing and signing a bunch of little yellow passes uh-huh. um, to like, for crowd control. But someone had got a hold of one of them and then bootlegged and sold <laughs> a bunch of copies. So the space was way over capacity. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, overall, the whole thing was so theatrical. Fatou was an absolute pill the entire time, just like shouting, interrupting, whining, drawing caricatures of people in the trial. He was accusing everyone of being a liar, interrupting everyone, going on these really long tangents, telling stories. Um, There's no transcript, but the author used newspaper articles and accounts to kind of reconstruct some bits. Like, I'm going to kind of read you this excerpt where Patu just wouldn't stop telling stories. So, like, as Patu launched into this long explanation... The prosecutor interrupted him and he shouted, "Um, would you please let me finish my story? And then the president goes, I forbid you to speak in that tone. Speak softly. And Patu says, all right, but I don't care to be treated like a criminal. And I beg the gentlemen of the jury, who will be the final arbiters of this fight, to carefully note all the lies in the dossier. The theft of the electricity started... (laughs) <laughs> and then he just like goes on another like long tangent about like stealing this electricity <laughs> from back in the day. Yeah, it was all a lie. And then he says, you know, and this time it was the president who interrupted. And Betty responded, will you please let me continue? I do think I have some rights here. This is my trial. And the president throws his arms up in the air and says, I've never seen anything like this. And Petit goes, don't throw your arms up in the air, Monsieur le President. <laughs> And then the president yells back, I'll throw my arms in the air if I want to. They're just like fighting. (laughs) And getting mad at each other. Uh. You know, and then like when they get into the nitty gritty, for instance, like how do plastic explosives work? You know, Petu didn't even know what they look like. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't know how to detonate them. Nothing. And, you know, they're all threatening to punch each other in the teeth. They're calling each other traitors. That happened a lot. (laughs) At one point, everyone just shouted over each other until the magistrates just straight up, like, stood up and walked out of the courtroom. (laughs) Like, I shall not. I don't have a gavel. I'm leaving. Uh, So this goes on. That's like my summary of the first five days. On the fifth day, Patio demanded the court, he's like, this will prove my innocence, which was not a good move, to go to the prince's house on 21 Rue And that means everybody, because it's a public trial. Mm-hmm. So that's like hundreds of people. Uh, so that was total chaos. The entire court, hundreds of spectators, all got access to 
this house. There was a stampede. A reporter was like knocked to the ground. Someone kicked a policeman. And uh, people just raided the house for souvenirs. And they couldn't even get the, con- like the court uh, under control. That's hilarious. That sounds American too. <laughs> Someone got into one of the libraries like on an upper floor and mm-hmm. started tossing stuff out of the window <laughs> to the crowd so people outside could get souvenirs. And uh, people legit had kids in the house. Like people were coming in. They yeah, had their yeah. kids in the house. And they were going around <laughs> with maps that they had found printed in newspapers and were, like giving themselves tours of like the different places. Like that's the stove. Da, yeah, da, right. Da. That's that weird triangle room. Yeah. Um, and there was like pictures of visiting lawyers who were out in the courtyard holding up human thigh bones and smiling and getting like pictures. Oh my God, there were still remains there? Yeah, there were still remains in the house. <laughs> and the other thing was, is that the house was shut down. So there was no electricity. It mm-hmm. was still shut off. So everything had to be conducted by candlelight. It was pitch black. Inside. Oh my God. So there were sometimes periods of like complete darkness when they were going into like the triangle room, yeah. for instance, and like nobody had a candle. And then that was like punctuated by nervous screaming because there were so many people and people were scared. Yeah, and you're like stumbling over arms. The main prosecutor and all this chaos, like couldn't get a word in edgewise. And he got so bent out of shape that he just like abandoned the court proceedings altogether and just like went and sat alone in the stables and refused to participate (laughs) in the court proceedings. (laughs) nobody cares (laughs) yeah why would they they're not there for great court proceedings (laughs) who would care at that point going with a candle in and out of the triangle room it's like like going into the haunted house and stealing a candelabra yeah and it horrified everybody like it was such a huge misstep to go people were just like like oh man this is really scary well how did dr p try to prove his innocence by going there what what did he just thought oh they're gonna (laughs) I don't know. They're going to see the truth. You know, it's so, it's just so weird. It's like the same thing with those letters, you know, like you, first of all, you're so dumb that you misspell basic words. And then also you think someone's family is going to not recognize the handwriting or see that the language is weird or he just gets away with a lot, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't really know. Um, eight days into the trial, so the prince's house thing, that was dumb. Yeah. Uh, eight days into the trial, the court heard from expert witnesses, like testimony from the Paris coroner about the corpses found in the river scene in 1942. The bodies, you know, were dismembered in the same strange way. Remember that from part one, mm-hmm. right? That they found at 21 Rue Sur, like, they were all dismembered like a quartered chicken and then scalped with their face and their hair in one piece. And then the strange puncture wounds on their thighs, right? And so this, you know, coroner testified saying, like, not only did I find all of those things at the princess house, mm-hmm. I also found 13 bodies with the exact same characteristics in the river between May 1942 and January 1943, just so to throw that out there. Did Dr. P ever study with this coroner? Because you were saying this coroner taught that technique. No. Hmm. He just doesn't, it's just kind of a mystery, mm-hmm. you know, but he just found it to be, it's it, it's more 
it's less that he's like that he's steady with me and more just like it's so uncommon mm-hmm. that it's less it, it's less likely to be a coincidence mm-hmm. like it's would be two people trained in the same way you just wouldn't really see that sure if that makes sense I mean, I could also just see like a bunch of random sickos being like, oh, yeah, I just like stabbing my, uh, you know, you like using the thigh as like a good holding place for my knife. The combination between all three things, mm-hmm. the thighs, the quartering. Sure. Right, right, right. Okay. And the scalping. Yeah. All three things. Gotcha. Happening yeah, yeah. At, at both places just seems like more very unlikely. Right, right. They had the psychiatrists come in uh, from that 1936 incident who kind of so like he's not temporarily insane right testifying that dr patu consistently used the excuse of insanity to get out of legal trouble they see this consistent deliberate pattern of manipulation um they had experts on the resistance and people who work for the resistance testify that no one had ever heard of dr patu or fly talks that they didn't know anyone that as far as they could tell dr patu didn't know anyone in the resistance and the few names and dates he provided as proof were wrong. He had no living people to corroborate anything. And his story made no sense given the structure of the resistance. None of any of his suspected accomplices said anything to help his case. So like any of mm-hmm. these co-conspirators, mm-hmm. really nobody came to his rescue. The defense pulled through, though, with a heroic effort. Like... They brought in tons of former patients and people from Yon. You know, he was painted as a popular doctor, an amazing small town mayor. People came in. They were like, he's 200 percent a Frenchman. They said Petus model should be simplicity, devotion and altruism. Um, a guy came in. He said, oh, you know, Patu. I was really tired and sick and he paid for me to take a vacation. Um, Another person came in and testified that he cured their um, constipation with a strange machine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some guys came and they said that he helped them get false ID papers. These two Englishmen who had been shot down over France in 1942. But here's the thing. So it was like very impressive, but the gallery was so used to pure outrageousness from Patu that they just like laughed at all of these open-hearted character Mm -hmm. witnesses. So Mm -hmm. every time people came in and they were like, he cured me with his machine. People were just like, belly laughing at right because they've been watching him act like a complete ass for eight days yeah right and so it was just like also just this really like insane moment of like these people are like he he helped me when i was sick and they're just dying laughing at these people which is really (laughs) and you know there were people who, other people who like shared a cell with him for months in the German prison who believed everything that he said about fly talks and believed him to be a credible, credible member of some sort of resistance group that maybe nobody knew about, mm-hmm. which, you know, that started to hold a little weight. These were all like military people who like knew a little bit about the resistance yeah. and there was an offshoot of the resistance, the communist resistance, which was lesser known. So like they thought, oh, maybe 
that was maybe more what he was talking about. And he had a history of working with the Communist Party. Uh-huh. He ran on the Communist platform as as mayor. Mm-hmm. So they thought maybe, oh, like there well, was a mix up. Conceivable to me that you could get together with like four other psychos and be like, oh, let's like as resistance people, let's go beat people to death. Yeah, I mean, I think the trick was is that he was like, oh, I worked with. They were. He was trying to like name drop. Yeah. People in like the well-known resistance community. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh there was a little bit of like, why are you doing that? You are saying that's not your group. Yeah, yeah. But he was known like he had a cool. There were like several witnesses who were like, I knew him when he was detained by the Germans and he was such a jerk the entire time to the Germans. Mm-hmm. He was so rebellious, sarcastic, like awful to the Germans and like had no regard for his life. And they they took that as a sign that he was obviously a part of the resistance. He could have just been awful. Yeah. You know, but they really took that as like he had balls of steel. Right. Yeah. So anyway, the trial goes on. 14th day was devoted to the civil suit lawyers who just kind of got up and presented their cases one by one. That took about two days. And then on April 16th was the final day of the trial. Closing remarks, the biggest crowd by far. People came that day with opera glasses (laughs) so they could get a close-up of Petu's face when he got the verdict, Mm -hmm. which is so ghoulish but ridiculous of like, yeah yeah of course they were so packed in tight some people were fainting from the heat but they were so packed that no one could get the fainting people out so their bodies just stayed there jammed upright between the people oh damn crazy yeah and the crowd basically won there were too many people in the courtroom for guards to take out loud ones so Everyone just had to let it go and let the people talk and gasp and do whatever they felt like doing. So they were just like, they really just took it. Yeah, right. The French were like, we deserve a victory lap. We're going to go off. Petu signed autographs during the recess periods. He was also going off. Throughout the trial, uh, the lead prosecutor, this gentleman named Dupin, was painted as weak and unprepared, and the closing arguments were no exception he just really bombed it, basically. The prosecutor? Yeah, he bombed it really hard. Basically, like, he just was not prepared. Uh-huh. So, like, there's all this evidence. Yeah. And instead of, like, pulling the threads together on this sprawling case or, like, attacking it from any sort of evidence-based perspective, he just basically was like, come on, guys. Petu is obviously just super evil, right? He's just, like, he's yeah. just a bad guy. And the main thrust of his argument was that like Petu was a monster and should be sentenced to death, but he didn't really like make any connections or like have any aha moments. Right. The defense, however, was a completely different story. This guy, Floriat, did his closing arguments over six and a half hours and drank champagne while he did it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most French shit I ever heard in my life. And he absolutely crushed it. His argument was... Basically, that this entire case had been falsified, that Petit was arrested by the Germans for fighting for the resistance, and the bodies at the princess house had been planted, and police tried to make connections back to Petit using flimsy evidence, that Petit was working in lesser-known circles of the resistance, namely the communist resistance, which was its own thing, and 
all the details about the resistance they were grilling him on were all just kind of a big misunderstanding. They were talking about different resistance groups and basically his whole like closing arguments with just this excellent evidence-based refutation. He cast a ton of doubt on the eight victims that Petu denied having killed, showing all the reasons why it was possible that Petu had nothing to do with their deaths. And then he turned to the remaining 19 people that Petu stood accused of murdering and then outlined the strong evidence of those 19 people having connections to Germans or being German collaborators. Mm -hmm. And so his conclusion was Petu had the right to kill the 19 people he actually openly admitted to killing during world war times mm -hmm. and that there wasn't enough evidence to con convict him of killing the remaining eight people he was accused of killing. So Floriat rocked it so hard that he got a straight up standing ovation at the <laughs> end of his closing <laughs> argument. Damn. And with that, the three magistrates and seven jurors went to deliberate. Consensus was the prosecution did a terrible job. But there was one thing. Dr. Petu really just sat up in that box for 16 days acting like a complete jackass. Yeah. Not acting like a self-sacrificing patriot or a caring, loving family doctor, but a guy who was joking, sleeping, sulking, you know, drawing inappropriate cartoons, insulting people. Like, while his victims' families were literally crying out loud in the courtroom, mm -hmm. he was grinning and posing for photos and signing autographs. So back then, the juries in France didn't take no American-style breaks. They just did whatever. So at 12.35 a.m., <laughs> everybody was still in the courtroom. After just three hours of deliberation, they returned their verdicts on 135 counts of various crimes. I'm not going to list them out here because murder, you get it. Yeah. Patu was found guilty of 126 counts out of 135, including 26 counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to beheading via guillotine. There was shouting and gasping, but Patu seemed unaffected up until the point when he was let out of the courtroom, when he turned and screamed, I must be avenged. No one knew who he was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> the court awarded $1,970,000 francs to the victim's families, around 1% of what he was estimated to have stolen. Mm. The approximately 200 million francs worth of gold, jewels, and cash has never been found by authorities or treasure hunters who picked through his properties over the years. Patu went back to smoking and writing poetry, waiting for what he called his assassination. I didn't know this, but... Back then, I guess, the position of the executioner was hereditary. There were these grand executioner families of France, and the guillotines were their private property. So by 1946, there weren't a lot of great executioner families left just because there were just less enthusiasm for beheadings. Mm -hmm. And the main executioner guy went on strike 
for a bit for just for higher wages. He was mad. Yeah. And that delayed Petu's execution for a while. So they thought about maybe shooting Petu, but that wasn't right because shooting was for traitors. And then Petu said he'd die laughing if they didn't figure it out. But they did. Good one, by the way. On the morning of May 25th at 3.30 a.m., the last executioner came to the Sante prison with his guillotine to set up in the courtyard. They woke Patu up at dawn, dressed him in his old trial suit. He wrote letters to his wife and son, and they took him to the courtyard. Other prisoners pounded on the walls to say goodbye. He was offered a glass of rum and a cigarette, as is customary. He said no to the rum, yes to the cigarette. Petu signed a registration book, and then authorities tied his hands behind his back, shaved his neck, and cut off his shirt collar. Witnesses said he was remarkably calm, and with that, Marcel Petu was beheaded at 5.05 a.m. Au revoir. Is that French? Yeah. Thank you so much for rocking with us here at Muriel's Murders. Hit us up on the social medias. Find Mario Castellini. He does all of our music and we love him. Muriel, thanks for such a great story. Nick, thanks for doing all the editing, something, something, producing this thing. Yep. And uh, okay, that's you guys. You guys know the deal. I don't know. We love you. You guys are amazing. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, yeah, we got more stuff coming up always. I don't know. I think we're just done at this point. Yeah, man, exhausting. we're tired, man. But you know, y'all are great. We're so glad to be here with you. Yeah. I'm all saying stuff like Blad. Blad. We're <laughs> so glad to have been with you. I do not recommend these uh, <laughs> shots. My whole mouth tastes like chemicals. Yeah, really gross. Okay, okay. bye. <laughs>